listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Have you heard what the millennials are? Millennials are those that are born between the years 1980 and 2000. That means they range in age from the mid-teens to the mid-30s. The millennials have very different characteristics compared to the people from other generations. Because they are from the digital age, they are constantly online and on their smartphones. Because they are always connected to others online or on smartphones, no matter where they are, they are able to speak to each other all the time about work and other things. That is why there are many of them that do not take their eyes off their computer screens or smartphones. Other characteristics that millennials have are that they are forceful in showing their personal tendencies and working to achieve their personal desires. That is why they, as a group, consider themselves special and they are proud that they are different from others. That is why the food industry is now catering to these millennials and allowing them to dictate what they want, allowing them to customize their own menus. They ask to take things out, add something else, use a different sauce, make it a different size, and so on. If I think about it, I am doing my part as a millennial by following these characteristics. I remember when I was younger, I went into restaurants and ordered whatever was on the menu and ate the food just as it was served. But as I got older, and as the restaurants became to cater to individual wants, I too began to order food according to my taste by making changes to the menu. There are many types of food that I started to order according to my taste. Hamburgers, burritos, omelets, and sandwiches. However, because the times are changing, being catered to in this part of our lives should not be happening in another part of our lives. What would that be? That's right. It has to do with truth. We should not take the truth of God's words and change it around and believe only the parts that we want to. But sadly, this generation of believers are showing those characteristics when it comes to their faith. We will continue this conversation after the first song. Climb out of this boat and then Under the crashing waves To step out of my comfort zone Into the realm of the unknown Where Jesus is And he's holding out his hand But the waves are calling out my name And they laugh at me Reminding me of all the times I've tried before and failed the ways they keep on telling me Time and time again Boy, you never win You never win But the voice of truth Tells me a different story The voice of truth Says do not be afraid And the voice of truth Says this is for my glory Try and keep 
universal idea that we as believers in faith learn and believe in. It is our Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to this earth to save the world. He followed God's plan all the way to His death and died on the cross to save us by washing away our sins. Jesus Christ died for us and raised from the dead to live again. We thank and believe in Jesus Christ that loves us so much to go through all that hardship for us. We praise Jesus Christ. We worship Him. However, we have a hard time accepting another side of Jesus. What would that be? That's right. It is that Jesus Christ is our Lord, and we have a hard time accepting that fact. Jesus bought all of us with His blood. He is our Lord that freed us from the slavery of sin by dying on the cross for us. But we are having trouble accepting Him as our Lord. This may be due to the fact that the world has made us believe that we are the owners of our own lives. But we cannot just believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior and not accept the fact that Jesus is our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior, and Jesus, our Lord, is one person. When we say that we welcome Jesus into our lives, it means that we accept Him as our Savior and also accept Jesus as our Lord. These two concepts cannot be separated. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are saying that the owner of our lives, the owner of our flesh and souls, is not us but Jesus Christ our Lord. What do all of you believe? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Or is Jesus just your Savior?
Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus Tells Three Parables, Part 2, based on Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. So Jesus shares here another farming parable. We see that he does this a lot. And God's kingdom is likened here to a man who scatters seed, then goes to sleep, and the seed grows he knows not how. Now here the emphasis is on the mysterious results of his sowing. As the farmer sleeps, the crop grows. And he really doesn't do anything between the sowing and the reaping. It just, in between, it is something mysterious at work. His work is that of sowing, the message of the kingdom, the gospel. His work is sowing. And God's work is growing. Do you see it? He's doing the sowing, but what is that force that's bringing about the growing? It is God Himself. God grows this crop after He sows it. Why do you think Jesus would have shared this parable here? What do you think Jesus wants to tell you and me? In the same way He would have told the disciples. Well, you can imagine how encouraging this word would have been to that group of disciples who were distracted and disappointed by what their eyes saw and their hearts felt, right? I mean, they were feeling utter weakness. The Jewish leaders, many of whom they they respected and knew, these crowds, and even Jesus' family have rejected Jesus Himself. And I'm sure that Jesus sensed their hearts struggling, struggling to trust Jesus' Word and anticipated their fear. When He would send them out, Eventually, two by two, equipped with nothing more than the Word, the good news of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to be ready. Christians later that would receive this, in 70 AD and later, when they would have first read this and received this from Mark, this would have met them as they were experiencing great resistance to the Gospel. And they would have felt a sense of weakness at their words. Have you ever experienced this kind of weakness, this feeling of weakness? I have. I believe that if you're human and you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you felt this. I've had non-Christians that I've met with for months reading through the Gospel of Mark, witnessing to them, praying for them, who have walked away deaf to the Gospel. Maybe that's been you. You feel like you failed. Or maybe you feel like in that moment that you're trying to attack the very gates of hell and all you've been equipped with is a little water gun. You're kind of squirting back the flames. I mean, at least you could have gotten a super soaker, right? But you got a water gun to go to battle with Satan. And your words, they just feel so weak and, and not ready for the task that's been given you. Or maybe you felt this with other Christians that you've tried to encourage. You've tried to counsel a brother or a sister who needed fresh words of encouragement or hope for their marriage that looked hopeless. Or they've just been diagnosed with some sickness and you just don't know what to say. And You're feeling in that moment like what you really need is an F-22 fighter jet. Right? To come in and to bring hope and salvation where it seems like there's no hope. And you're throwing little paper airplanes. And you're not very good at building paper airplanes. So you're not getting a lot of traction. And it feels in those moments, doesn't it? Like there's just nothing working or happening with your eyes. You feel discouraged. And in this moment, we are given fresh encouragement. See, here what God says to the disciples and what God says to you and me, He tells us, don't underestimate God and don't overestimate yourself. Don't underestimate God and don't overestimate yourself. See, Jesus says, don't underestimate the power of the Gospel in others' lives and the way that it works. Sometimes you are sharing the Gospel with someone and as you watch them, it looks like the seed is just bouncing off. Nothing's happening like there's going to be no growth. And yet you pray and you wait and you trust that it is God's work to bring the growth, not yours. Or maybe, maybe you've forgotten that. 
Maybe you have overestimated yourself. See, God works through His people who sow His words, but it is God ultimately who brings the growth and works. Remember what Jeremiah 13.23 says. There Jeremiah asks, can an Ethiopian change his skin or can a leopard change his spots? Of course not. And then there's little hope for you who are accustomed to doing evil to do good. Maybe the reason that we get discouraged when we witness or counsel others is that we want the power ourselves to produce results that only God Himself can bring. Maybe we, in that moment, giving ourselves way too much credit and confidence in the work that God is at work doing, rather than trusting that we are absolutely dependent, not only them, but us, as we are looking for the results. We trust that it's only God that can do what we need. It is not my cleverness of speech. It is not me memorizing the Bible from backward to front. Now, I'm better witness if I do that, but ultimately I can do that, and still I'm not promised that I'm going to bring everyone to Christ. Now, we know that what we need is God Himself to work in us and through us. We need to see God do something that only He can do. See, maybe we underestimate the power of God and overestimate ourselves. God's power is displayed best in weakness. The way that we know that is, so says the cross. That's where God's power is on display. And it is still, His power is still on display in weak sowers like me and you. Where He makes sure that it is power, ultimately, that is given credit. And His glory is made known, not ours. We sow, God grows. Keep sowing the Gospel, brothers and sisters, in the lives of others. And wait and pray for the power of God to show up. God's people take God's Word to others. We sow and we wait like the farmer. We wait. We wait. We share Christ. And we wait for the Holy Spirit to do His work of regeneration. When He raises someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. We wait for the Holy Spirit to sanctify His people, transforming them more into the image of His Son. We wait for the Holy Spirit to make His local church healthy by the power of God's Word. We actively wait by praying, killing sin, sowing more seed, and living a faithful life. Do you see it? What a triumphant promise from the lips of Jesus. This, this is a glorious promise. He says ultimately the kingdom of God doesn't depend on human effort and human insight can't explain it. Only God can explain God's kingdom. The harvest here speaks of the last day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And until that day, God's Word will grow. It will grow God's kingdom in God's time and in God's way. See, not by human effort or human logic. What a joy. Isn't it a joy? Isn't it a joy to know that when you go and you witness and you feel like a failure, it's okay, because that's God's job to grow it, right? Like, my job is to sow. God is the one who brings the harvest. I'm waiting for God to do His thing. I've done my thing. And I'm trusting in Him to do what only He can do. I love what Martin Luther says about this, especially given the fact that we're this year celebrating the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. The 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther went in October. Uh, He went and nailed on 1517 to the door at the church in Wittenberg his 95 Theses. A knock that basically resounded and thundered throughout all of Christianity. He changed the way that the church lived life together forever on that day. And here's Jesus' parable about the kingdom reminds me of one of his most famous quotes. Luther, Luther said this. He said, I opposed indulgences in all papists. Um, you know, those who support popes and indulgences paying for forgiveness with God. But never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game of worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would it have been? A mugs game. I did nothing. I left it to the Word. The Word changed everything. See, Jesus 
offers great hope in that. But there's one last parable on God's kingdom here that's meant to encourage us. And that's this. In verses 30 to 34, we see that God's kingdom grows disproportionate to its being, its beginnings. God's kingdom grows disproportionate to its beginnings. Listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 30. Here's what he says. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. and They were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, this parable seems to speak of the black mustard seed. It was used to make oil and mustard, like what you would find on hot dogs. Probably Hebrew international hot dogs. But hot dogs. It it was a condiment. And I know that this wasn't the smallest seed, and it wasn't the smallest seed at the time, but it was really proverbial for something that is very small and tiny. And the language, it may actually say the smaller seed. By relationship, it's a small, small seed. And smallness really is the point. In fact, Don Carson, writing about this text, says, he says that no Jew questioned the greatness of the future kingdom. Everyone had grand visions of what this kingdom that was promised would be. But its small beginnings would have been news. So God's kingdom began so small. And a seed, notice it wasn't just a seed that was enough. He had to use a really, really small seed and a single seed, a single mustard seed. And here the image is that God's kingdom begins so small, yet it grows up to be larger than expected and beyond what could be explained by natural occurrences. Of course, we know that mustard seeds could grow. They could grow and and it'd be potentially 15 feet high. Uh, Not very big compared to an oak, but very big considered to its small beginnings. That really is the point. It grows disproportionate to its size. I like what R.T. France uh, says about this text in his commentary. He says, Jesus' language of the great tree-like end of the mustard seed envisions Ezekiel's two cedars in Ezekiel 17 and 31. And Nebuchadnezzar's tree representing the growth of impressive empires. And the birds which nest in them are explicitly interpreted as all great nation who enjoyed their benefits. So this might point this parable to the future wide scope of the kingdom of God that awaits on the last day when Jesus returns. And see here, God's kingdom is going to be beyond anything that they would expect. And on that last day, many nations, not just Israel, will find their place in this tree, the kingdom of God. And you can see how this would be encouraging. I mean, God's kingdom may seem unimpressive now, but friends, we haven't seen anything yet. Through this small seed, all nations will be blessed. The end time tree will be spectacular. Just as God promised Adam and Abraham and David that a great seed would bless the nations. Jesus was that seed. And of course, the Bible ends with people from every tribe and tongue worshiping together before the throne in what will be a kingdom whose borders extend from sea to sea. And that's not just New Testament. That's Psalm 72. That's the vision of the kingdom that we await. And hear this. Hear this. God's kingdom, we are here told by Jesus, wins. And it will be great. Maybe as you were looking around you, as you look at perhaps the kingdom of God, you fear that maybe God's kingdom is losing and might be on the brink of falling apart. That maybe God in the end doesn't win. Here Jesus says, make no mistake, I don't care how small or unimpressive the seed looks. I want you to know that what is coming is mighty beyond anything you can imagine. God will win. It has been destined from the beginning. God wins. Make no mistake, this small thing that you have looked at will be great beyond your wildest imaginations. Do you see here what Jesus does? 
See, Jesus is inviting these disciples who in their present experiences are distracted from confidence in the Word of God. And here he says, I want you to understand a couple of things right now. One, I want you to understand that the power of God is at work in imperceptible ways. You might be looking at your life and your attempts at being faithful and feel like you have failed But you need to know this. God does not fail. He promises you sow, He grows. That's what God does. Second, He says not only that, I don't want you to trust God's power now. I want you to look to the future that awaits you. Do you see it? I want you for today to borrow against tomorrow. I want you to look to the future kingdom that's coming. To that great end that awaits us. And know that the realities that are coming are things that you ought to put your hope in. You can trust that God always makes good on His promises. And that kingdom that awaits you is going to be beyond your wildest imagination. It's exactly what He calls us to do. He calls us to make daily withdrawals from future grace. I'd expect heaven to blow your mind. Do you know that? I don't care how good your imagination is. Heaven's going to blow your mind. Jesus says as much. But we ought to arm our minds constantly with future expectations that God has given us in His Word. So maybe heaven's going to be greater than we can imagine. But God says, not the point. I want you to go ahead and imagine. I want you to go ahead and try to understand what God has revealed and expect it to be all the better. But catch this, the images that He gives us are so good anyway. I mean, the images that we have in God's Word of God's place for us are amazing. I mean, we look to God's Word to give us more confidence in God's Word, right? You lack confidence in God's Word, we go to God's Word and it gives us more confidence in God's Word. See, God's Word tells us to trust God's Word. And remember that so much of what God promises us in the end boggles our imaginations. It seems almost too good to be true. And so what I'd like to do, I want to close really with just five things that we see about end times. About this coming day when Jesus returns and the kingdom is exposed to us. Just five. There are so many more. But I want to do is I'd like to just give you some images, a few images as we close, so that hopefully you'll be salivating for more than lunch as you leave here. That you'll actually have a fresh desire to think about heaven. And let me encourage you to continue to go through God's Word and add to this list. But here's some Some realities that ought to shape our present day. So let me just share five of these. And I did this quickly. There are many more. But you could find more than this in your Bible. But consider these five promises. One, look at Revelation 3. We are there promised that God will clothe His people Himself and cover their shame. That's a future promise. He's already, in a sense, covered our shame, but there's a great day coming when we will be removed as far as east is from the west from our sins. We will be having fully a new identity and Jesus Himself will clothe us and cover our shame in the same way that Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves as they were ashamed before God for sinning before Him. God says, I'm going to clothe you Myself and cover your shame. Ultimately and climactically. Do you see? Like, that's a future promise that we have. We will reign with Him and He will clothe us. Maybe today you're here and you're ashamed of your past sins or your current weaknesses. And God says, there is a day coming where I will forever cover your shame. What a promise. Do you see how the future matters for today? That shame you will not bear forever. God is coming to remove it Himself. Or what about this? Second, 1 Corinthians 15 promises. We will have new bodies that will last forever. And restored creation. Free from the effects of the fall. So we don't have to fear what man will do to us for sharing the gospel. We don't have to fear what has been taken from us physically in this life. We do not have to fear. We can weep and grieve the sicknesses of this world. But we are promised something so much better in the world to come. God will heal us. He will heal us not just in the way that a doctor fixes something only to have something else break down. He'll heal us forever with bodies that don't break down. What a promise. 
Revelation 7, 9, a third one, tells us that we will in heaven see people from every tribe and tongue gathered together around the throne of God, worshiping Him. Here's what that means. What a glorious image. means lots of things. But here's one. That means that we can share the gospel confidently with people all over the world, knowing that we're promised God will save some from every people on earth. He says so. People from every tribe and tongue will be there at the throne. Why? Because God says He's going to do it. What a great promise. Knowing that when we go to evangelize, that God will succeed and accomplish His purposes. We are invited to step into the victory that God has won on our behalf. Fourth, Revelation 21. Promises that God Himself will be with us in heaven forever. And that there He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death. It will be no more. In other words, all present sorrows, whatever you are sorrowful about today, whatever sorrow has captured your attention, maybe there's a sorrow that you just can't get rid of, and you've, you've sought counsel from others, you have good brothers and sisters in Christ around you, maybe in a community group who are encouraging you, praying with you, and you can't escape this sorrow, and you wonder if there will ever be a day when you'll be able to get free from it. It's almost as though it's got a hold on you more than you have a hold on it. And you don't know how to escape it. Jesus says there's coming a day where if you can't get rid of that sorrow in this life and the life to come, it will be removed from ever. And do you love the image? How is it going to be removed? It's the very hand of God that comes down and wipes away every tear. What a picture. Don't you long for the day when God wipes away your tears? Fifth, Joel 2. Joel 2, Old Testament prophet, promises that God will restore what the locusts have eaten. And in context, of course, we know that that is a judgment because of God's people sinning against Him. And even there, God says, when that last day comes, when Jesus returns, I'm going to restore you, even the consequences of your sin will be paid back in full. Why? Because I'm a God of grace. And so today, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I have lost so much. There's no way that I could ever be repaid for the spouse that I've lost. Or the job that I lost. Or the retirement that I lost. And God says, oh trust me, it will be paid back in full and all the more. Why? Because grace always exceeds our meager examples of reciprocity. God always shows up with more than what we've lost because that's who our God is. Brothers and sisters, let's pray to this great God as we close today. Let's pray together.
is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston, your host of the series, If Anyone Wishes to Come After Me. Last week we discussed the difference between a wise person who studies the words of Jesus and a person who lacks wisdom because they don't study. I hope that you were able to live your life this past week as a wise person. We have been discussing during the past few weeks what it means to follow Jesus and the repercussions that come with being a Christian. Today we will be discussing how we should live our lives if we decide to follow Jesus once we know everything that it takes. Do you believe that it is possible to give up being a Christian and go back to your formal life after deciding to follow Jesus? I'm not asking you if it is possible to lose your salvation after you have been saved. I'm asking all of you if it's possible for a person who once decided to follow Jesus could, by his own will, one day decide to give up his life of following Jesus and to go back to his former life. We are able to find the answer to that question in the Bible. The answer is yes, it is possible. A person is able to give up his life of following Jesus and return to his former life. This is explained in John chapter 6. Jesus fled to the other side of the ocean after perceiving that the people intended to come and take him by force. After seeing the miracle of the five loaves and two fish, they wanted to make him king. Although he tried to escape the crowd, they followed Jesus to the other side. Jesus told them they were not following him because they saw a miracle, but because they are full from feeding on the food. He also told them not to work for food that will go bad, but for the food that leads to eternal life. Jesus told them their motive for coming after him and their goal of making him king was wrong. The crowds that followed Jesus had decided to follow him on their own, and Jesus called many of these followers his disciples. Often, when we hear the word disciple, we only think of Jesus' twelve disciples. These were the apostles. He had many more disciples that followed him other than just the twelve apostles. Jesus tells the crowd that he is the living bread from heaven, giving eternal life. 
In chapter 6, verse 53, he says that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. What does Jesus mean by this? What does he mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? We shouldn't eat food for our bodies, but we should live our lives eating for our eternal life. The food for our eternal life is Jesus Christ himself. We must live eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. We must have Jesus in our hearts and live our lives with Jesus. When one decides to follow Jesus, he must give up his own life and live the life of Jesus. Is this easy to do? We can tell that this is a difficult task from the amount of times that our ego gets in our way on a daily basis. But we shouldn't give up just because it's hard. We should never give up. To give up while following Jesus is to give up our eternal life. There were many people that listened to Jesus actually speak these words and found them very hard to understand. They decided to give up and they left him. Let's read John chapter 6 verses 60 and 66. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The disciples that decided to follow Jesus, the crowd that wanted to make Jesus king, they all listened to Jesus' words. They heard Jesus' statement about eating and living through them. That is when many people left him. They left their eternal life Jesus. And the Bible tells us that they never walked with Jesus again. Can you turn away from Jesus once you have decided to follow him? Yes, you can turn away and leave him. If you are not able to deny yourself, you return back to your former life. You leave eternal life and return to death. In John chapter 6, verse 67, Jesus asked the disciples that were still by his side, after the others had left him, if they wanted to leave as well. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? From the time in John chapter 6 where Jesus speaks to now, when we live, many people have decided to follow Jesus. But many people have also decided to give up following Jesus as well. To follow Jesus means to eat and live through Jesus. Just because you attend church does not mean that you follow Jesus. Just because you receive communion does not mean that you follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that we deny ourselves and we allow Jesus to live inside of us. People give up at the thought of living our lives through Jesus. They turn away. They say it's too difficult. But it is possible. As he watched his disciples leave, Jesus asks all of you, you do not want to go away also, do you? How will you answer Jesus? In a world full of corruption, where disciples compromise with the world and leave their lives of eternal life, if Jesus were to ask you, will you leave also, how will all of you answer him? Please think about your answer to this important question that Jesus asks. Your answer will determine the outcome of your eternal life. In John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, Simon Peter, one of the twelve disciples, answers Jesus. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What will your answer be? I hope that it is the same as Peter's. The word of eternal life is through Jesus, and he himself is eternal life. If we live in him, and he inside of us, we eat, drink, and live through Jesus. This is a hard statement to understand, but we cannot turn away just because it's hard to understand. How did Jesus respond to the disciples who left him after hearing these words? He did not change his words to make them understand it easier or try to stop them from leaving. He also did not take back his words that he spoke. Jesus invited everyone to follow him, but everyone does not accept his invitation.
the ones who decide to follow him, believe that he is Jesus Christ, sent from God, and live by following his words. Are you living your life today by eating and drinking through Jesus? Are you living in him and living your life according to him? This concludes today's episode. I thank you for listening and God bless.
处。But I'm never gonna stop falling for you. heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. When we order food at a restaurant, we're able to ask for things we like added and things that we would like to leave out. We can eat things that fit our palates. This is the trend of our times today. However, this trend cannot and should not enter our Christian life. It is not right to believe in certain things that we like and not believe in others because it is hard to do so. We cannot follow certain parts of the gospel while not following the parts that we do not like. More importantly, we must accept not only Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord. This is the way that we truly obey God's words and submit to Him as His servant. Romans chapter 8 verse 17 tells us that if we are to share our Lord's glory, we must also share His suffering. If we try to worship God in a worldly way, we will not share in His suffering and only receive glory. But many of the believers today try to receive only glory without going through the sufferings like Jesus did. But this is not what the Bible tells us. Of course, the Bible is not telling us that if we suffer, then we will receive glory in return. What the Bible is telling us is that if we truly want to know God's glory, then we must not try to avoid the suffering that comes our way as we walk towards the glory. Romans chapter 8 verse 18 tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To be able to receive God's glory, you must go through suffering along the way. For Jesus Christ to become our Savior, we must believe in Jesus our Lord. Jesus does not become our Lord just because we obey Him. He does not become our Lord just because we lower ourselves to become His servant. Jesus already saved us and bought us, and that is why we are already His servants and possession. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Jesus Christ gave up His life to save us, but He is not just our Savior. He gave up His life and bought us. All of us became His possession. That is why Jesus became our Lord. Are all of you living your life worshiping Jesus as your Lord? Are you doing all that the Lord asks you to do in your life? If you want Him to be your Savior, but not your Lord, then you must change your way of thinking, because that will never happen. I hope that all of you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week, and God bless.